0: The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 52 begins with the party entering the secret workroom of the artificer Grithwhip Blacknail. Here they find the partially destroyed skeleton of a dwarf, presumably Grithwhip himself, along with a very special suit of armor. The armor had once belonged to Grithwhip's father, Mike Healy. Through a flashback, we learn that the younger Blacknail had attempted to augment it with some magic of his own. The process he used is a risky one, however, and Grithwhip was not able to control the magical energies he was trying to harness. The gem used in the binding exploded and killed him where he stood. Back in the present, Grumblebelly discovers a cache of intact scrolls, containing information of academic value and, in the case of two of them, spells. Umuras contains the spell Continual Light, and she intends to try adding it to her spellbook. With the exploration of the vault completed, the party members leave by the same teleportation device by which they entered. Outside, they find the ranger, Raydel, patiently waiting for them. With night not far off, they decide to make camp on the Eye, and begin the trek back to Thangar in the morning. Harl is deeply concerned. He considers their mission a failure, since they were unable to get to the Horn before the Dark Cleric could blow it. He worries about what might happen as a result, and he is right to feel that way. It's always fun to begin a chapter with some dice rolling, and that is exactly what I'm about to do. Umura recently acquired a scroll containing the spell Continual Light and may now attempt to copy it into her spellbook. I'll stick with my previous method of rolling an Intelligence check to determine her success. Umora's Intelligence is now a whopping 18, so she'll only fail if I roll a 19 or a 20. Even if she does fail, she'll be able to try again when and if she reaches level 6. Here's the roll. A 15 indicates success. Umura copies the spell into her book without too much difficulty and, feeling very satisfied with herself, assumes the cross-legged position that Grumblebelly showed her to facilitate meditation. As before, when she attains the proper state of mind, she begins to levitate a half-inch above the ground. While she's contentedly relaxing her consciousness, I'll make a few more rolls, and hopefully the noise won't disturb her. On this day, Day 63, the companions will resume their hex crawl as they make their way back to Thangar. While it took seven days to reach the vault, the way back will take a bit longer. This is because Harl and Aradine both flat-out refused to cross the Skundavar, or the Bridge of the Wind in the Common Tongue, a second time. This forces Grumblebelly and Raydel to plot a new course, at least as far as the foothills. So instead of the three days that distance took them when they used the bridge, I'll add a d4 to determine how many extra days they will need for their new course. The roll. A one. That's lucky. Grumblebelly's maps are good indeed. The journey home will then take eight days. Four in the mountains, two more in the foothills, and a final two back in the mountains as they approach Thangar. Well, with that sorted, let's roll some more dice. It's the usual weather, stumble upon, and wandering encounter for each day. Here are the rolls for day 63. Weather. A 13. It's a pleasant summer day. Stumble upon. Six. Nothing special is found. Wandering encounter. A four. No encounter. Day 64. Weather. 10. Another nice day, much like the previous one. Stumble upon. 19. So close. This roll has yet to produce any interesting result, but I'm keeping it anyway because one of these days, I'm going to roll a 20. Wandering encounter. A two. Next is day 65. For weather. An 18. A perfect day. The companions can see for miles in every direction and the sheer majesty of the mountains is enough to lift even Harl's spirits. Stumble upon. A two. Wandering encounter. A five. The rolls for day 66. Weather. A 15. It is the fourth day in a row of beautiful summer weather. Stumble upon. Another 15. No result there. Wandering encounter. I've got a five. By this point, through a combination of magical and natural healing, and with no rolling required, I can safely say that the party members are all back to their maximum hit points. Let's check in with them and see what they're up to. Chapter 53. Part 1. Day 66. Early evening. Party status. Harl, 26 of 26 hit points. Girios. 33 of 33. Eridine. 18 of 18. Umura. 23 of 23. Grumblebelly. 11 of 11. Raidel. 16 of 16. Spells available Umura has memorized. Charm person. Shield. Levitate. Knock. And lightning bolt. Gyrios has prayed for. Cure light wounds times 2 person, and bless. Grumblebelly has memorized Detect Magic and Protection from Evil. By the time the sun dipped low enough to touch the mountain tops to the west, the familiar figure of Raedel could be seen approaching from the south. The companions could tell at once by his unhurried stride that he was coming to report no ill, and all five of them relaxed. They had not for a moment forgotten the giant footprint that they had seen in the riverbank, and every day without danger was a blessing. Before long, they could hear the ranger whistling a melody, as he sometimes did, and their spirits were buoyed further still. Perhaps he was coming to tell them that the foothills were not far off. When he rejoined them, he smiled winningly, distributed full water skins to each of them, and spoke of the terrain they would soon be traversing while the companions slaked their thirst.
1: We should make the hills with another four or five hours' walk,"
0: he concluded happily. This is welcome news indeed, Ranger," said Harl. Putting the Kazmirioth to our backs means the most dangerous part of the journey is behind us. Don't forget about those hobgoblins. They haunt these hills," Umura reminded him. Oh, I have not forgotten them. Far from it, Umura. But better hobgoblins than giants, hm? Are there no giants in the hills? asked Girios. There are, said Radel. but they are not the worst kind of giants.
2: Perhaps we'll be able to get some real food,
0: complained Grumblebelly, patting his noticeably reduced waist.
2: We've been eating mine rations for four days straight.
0: Gyrios made a face of disgust that made Raydel laugh. (laughs) Haha,
1: well, I'll try to do my best to hunt or forage something on the morrow.
0: Should we make camp here, then? asked Gyrios. Or press on?
1: We'll stay here tonight,
0: the ranger replied, choosing a spot and dropping his pack.
1: I'm tired of walking, to be honest.
0: Nobody needed persuading, and so they all settled down to another, fireless camp. In the warm summer air, it wasn't so bad. And besides, there was little material with which to make a fire, even if they had wanted one. They did have light, however, and this was a welcome change. Just a few days earlier, Umura had cast her new spell of Continual Light on the wick of her lantern. By adjusting the hood, she could more or less produce any amount of light from bright daylight to total darkness. During their watches, they kept it set to a very inconspicuous glow. The stars and moon provided the rest. That night, Umura stayed up with Grumblebelly during his watch. A question had suddenly occurred to her as she was laying down to sleep, and it nagged and pestered her, demanding to be answered, before allowing her to drift off.
2: What is it you wish to know, Umura?
0: asked the artificer when Umura explained her sleeplessness. Well, I was thinking about my new spell that can permanently imbue an object with light, and I got to wondering. Can a human bind a spell to a gem the way you can?
2: I, uh… well, I don't think it has ever been tried. I doubt it, though.
0: Why do you doubt it? I was thinking that I should like to try it.
2: Oh no, Umura, you mustn't.
0: Why not? Don't you think I could do it?
2: It's ever so dangerous. You saw what happened to Grithwhip, and he was a master. You would be wiser to decide to learn how to juggle and throw a dozen knives into the air on the first try.
0: (laughs) But you have done it, have you not?
2: Well, yes, I have. And several times, but only with lesser magics. The more powerful the spell to be bound, the higher risk of losing control.
0: Perhaps I could try it with some lesser spell, then, suggested Umura.
2: I wouldn't recommend it. Even if we had an appropriate gem, which we do not, and even if it were possible for a human, and that is not a given either. You must consider, artificers like me have spent years in training, learning how to harness the magic during the binding process.
0: Well, just for the sake of conversation then, if I promise never to try it, will you tell me how it works? I'm wide awake now anyway, and there's no way I'll be able to get any sleep with all this on my mind.
2: Oh, very well. But you must promise me.
0: Done. I promise.
2: Alright. It begins not with the spell, but by finding the spirit of the gem. I see. All gems have things that are something like a soul, and the largest and most perfect gems have the largest and most perfect souls. Once you have found the soul of the gem, you can reach out to it with your mind and coax it forth. I'll explain that part later on, and that's when you begin to... Hey there, fine listeners. I'm Ken Brown, Game Master for the Rolling in the Geek podcast. I'm joining you today with an invitation for a place at our table to join Trevor the Cleric and Harkos the Monk as they discover the beauty and dark secrets of Riven, the Shattered Continent. Roll a perception check, subscribe to our website at ritgeekpodcast.com, and give us a listen on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred listening platform is. Thanks, and keep your eyes peeled for dragons.
0: Dramatis Personae. Ursuleth Stonecarver. Nine days ago. Bored. Bored, bored, bored. She paced the length of her bedroom back and forth, back and forth. Her chambers in the palace were beautiful, far nicer than her rooms back in Dwarvar, and everyone had been lovely to her, especially Chief Boehner, who visited her several times a day. But Ursuleth did not really know anyone in the palace, let alone the rest of Thangar, and very simply, there was nothing to do. She couldn't sleep all the time, though Gruenmog knew she had slept for almost three days straight after her rescue. Once she had had the idea to visit the Hornbeard brothers, those three dwarves who had found them when they had come so close to perishing on the mountainside. But when she inquired after them, she was told that all three brothers were away on a special mission. The first week had been quiet, but after that, things had slowed down even more, if that was even possible. Boehner stopped visiting her altogether, and when she finally ventured out to learn what had become of the kindly old dwarf, the seneschal, Holgner Ringlock, had put a sad arm around her and basically just conducted her back to her chambers, lamenting that the chief would be unavailable for a time, and that perhaps she could amuse herself with one of the many books her room had been furnished with. He could get new books for her if the ones she had displeased her. Amuse herself? Was that some kind of joke? The books they had stocked her room with were beneath contempt, mostly volumes of saccharine, heflin poetry, and fables for dwarven children much younger than she was. None of it was worth the parchment it was written on. What must they think of her to have provided such nonsense? Chief Augerstone had spoken at length about how forward-thinking Thangar was, and how many opportunities there were for young ladies. Thangar didn't keep their women hidden behind closed doors out of some outmoded sense of propriety the way they did in Dwervar, he claimed. But wasn't that exactly what they were doing to her? Why were they forcing her to stay inside? Where was everyone? Would nobody tell her what was going on? She was the great-granddaughter of Kleneth Stonecarver, for the love of gold. Who did they think they were keeping her in the dark? Why, she was basically a prisoner, living in luxury to be sure, but a prisoner all the same. Well, it was unacceptable, and she would not accept it. She hadn't survived an encounter with a grizzly bear to live like this now. Ursuleth waited an hour to make sure Ringlock was nowhere nearby, slipped off her shoes and left her room. She had decided to do a little investigating of her own. She had no intention of returning to her chambers without some answers, and besides that, she wanted to have some fun. And sneaking around unseen while exploring the palace was kind of exciting. But she quickly became disappointed. It was too easy. There were barely any guards around. Still, Ursaleth was resolute. She wouldn't stop looking until she found out what was going on. Many hours later, a servant knocked on Ursuleth's chamber door, balancing a tray holding the young lady's supper in his other hand. Lady Stone Carver? He knocked and knocked and called her name, gently at first in case she was asleep, but then louder. Lady Stonecarver? Lady Ursuleth Stonecarver? But Ursuleth did not answer. Let's return to the present. Day 67 is about to begin, and we have some rolls to make. By now you'll know the drill, weather, stumble-upon, and wandering encounter rolls for each day. If a wandering encounter is indicated over the next two days while the party is in the foothills, I'll alter the table I used before and increase the chances to encounter hobgoblins. I think the dice made it pretty clear before that they more or less control this stretch of land. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's make the rolls and take our cues from the results. Here's the rolls for day 67. Weather. A 17. The beautiful weather continues. Stumble upon. Oh, a 20. I was completely unprepared for that. It's funny, but now that it's happened, I'm not quite sure what to do. I'm going to have to take a break and spend some time thinking this through. Chapter 53. Part 2. Day 67. Early Morning. Party Status. The party status is unchanged. Since they had taken a long way around to avoid the Skundavar according to Harl and Aradine's wishes, it was hard to deny Gyrios when he requested that they take a different route through the foothills to avoid another run-in with the Hobgoblin tribe. Raydel was quick to agree, and his offer to range ahead to hunt and forage some real food sealed the deal. While he was away, the party looked to Grumblebelly to plot their course, but he was less confident
2: than usual. My maps are not detailed in this part of the range, he muttered
0: doubtfully. Think of it as an opportunity to improve your maps, then, suggested Gerios. Truthfully, it was the idea of hot food more than accurate maps that persuaded him. Very well, he said, folding up his well-worn map and tucking it away.
2: We go that way.
0: They struck their camp and set off in the direction he indicated. After a few hours, they could see the foothills, dotted with pines where they met the mountains, and then thick with trees to the south. Sometime before noon, when Grumblebelly's complaints of hunger typically began, they spotted Raydell on his way back to rejoin them. The ranger was empty-handed, they noticed. But when he caught up to the party, he was practically beaming.
1: Such a beautiful animal. I almost wish my arrows had missed.
0: He went on to describe a beautiful heart that he had spotted and shot. The first arrow, he told them, had not killed it, and he was forced to chase the beast for some time before catching up to it and making the killing shot. The best part was that not only would they be able to dine on good meat for the next few days, but the heart had led him to a very special spot, a place of unmatched beauty. Raidel could hardly wait to show it to them and hurried them along. A half hour later they came to a secluded place of such beauty it seemed it must have been created by magical beings for some special purpose. Radel was as happy to find that the slain heart remained unmolested by scavengers as he was to share his discovery. I've never seen anything like it, whispered Umora, putting voice to the singular thought they all shared. It is. She struggled for the right word. Perfect. The scene in front of them would remain printed in each of their memories for as long as they lived a series of shallow pools with smooth rocks and pebbles visible beneath the surface, which was still and clear as glass, except where little waterfalls fed them. White waters cascaded over a semicircular ledge, looking like locks of hair, and joined the water in ethereal clouds of mist. Above the ledge, they could see where the foothills met the mountains, and a single imperious spire, cracked down the middle and skirted in green lichen, seemed to stand sentinel over the scene from a distance. While Raydel expertly dressed and butchered the slain heart with his knife, Girios helped Harl make a small campfire. Grumblebelly and Umura sat on the bank of the biggest pool and resumed one of their previous conversations about spellcraft. Meanwhile, Eridine walked to the pool, stripping off her clothes and discarding them behind her as she went. She slipped into the water and felt its coolness touch every inch of her skin. It was glorious. In her ruined voice she asked the others if they intended to join her, and Umura replied that she preferred to eat first and swim after. Eridine shrugged and then dunked her head below the surface. Opening her eyes she found that she could see everything clearly. The rays of the sun penetrated beneath the surface and fanned the water in glimmering golden rays. A surge of joy passed through her as she kicked her feet and swam deeper. Then something caught her eye on the bottom of the pool so she propelled herself deeper into the cooler water below. One of the stones looked strange. Was it a shell? No, that didn't really make sense. She reached for it, and found that it was larger under the sandy bottom than she had thought at first. Effortlessly, she pulled it free of the sand and found that the thing in her hand was neither a stone nor a shell. It was a skull. Smaller than a human's, but not human. The teeth were not pointed as a goblin's were. Perhaps it was the skull of an elf. That seemed to make sense, at least given her limited experience with that race. She still had a little breath left in her lungs, so Erdine dug around in the sandy floor. She found the rest of the skeleton, but that is not all that she found. You know, I've been rolling that stumble upon d20 since episode 26, and I've never gotten a 1 or a 20 to indicate that anything was actually stumbled upon. Going back to that episode, I was surprised to learn that I actually came up with the mechanic as a way to provide food and water to a party that seemed about to cut right across a mountain range. I gotta say, now that I've finally rolled a 20, merely supplying some food to the party members is not going to be good enough. No, I'm going to have to find something good. It might be sort of good, or it might be really good, but we won't know until we start rolling some dice. First, I'm going to roll a d20. The higher the number, the better the item Eridine has found at the bottom of the pool. A roll of 19 or 20 will indicate a magical item. Any other number, I will multiply by 25, and that will be the value of the item in gold pieces. Okay, I've rolled a 15, so the item is not magical, but it is valuable and worth 375 GP. What kind of item is it? Let's roll for that too. On a d6, A one will be coins, two, gems, three, jewelry, four, a weapon, a five, some kind of art, and a six, some kind of information. The roll. A four. It's a weapon. Cool. What kind of a weapon? What do elves use that might have survived being underwater for so long? Let's keep this simple. A d6 with one to two being a dagger, three to four a short sword, and five to six a long sword. I rolled a five. Eredin surfaced from the water, goddess-like, naked and holding a gleaming sword in her right hand. She lifted it into the air as she waded onto the shore, and the straight, thin blade caught the light. The hilt and the grip were made of gold, as was the pommel, that was shaped to look like a raven's head and set with two black opals for eyes. When holding the sword normally, the bird's head was upside down, and the beak curved along the outside of the wielder's pinky. Spidery elven writing was etched along the length of the blade on one side. It was an exquisite weapon, fit for a prince. What's this? It seems that you have found a treasure, Eridine, said Umura, standing up and approaching the rogue to admire the weapon. Eridine was smiling broadly, and her eyes shone as she looked over the blade in her hands. Perhaps these pools truly are magical. I half expect to see a fairy or a sprite swimming across one of them after this. By now, Gyrios and Harl had already managed to get a small campfire lit, and Radel was busy cooking the venison. They passed the new weapon around as they ate, admiring it in turn. I wonder what is written along the blade, Umora wondered aloud. Whatever is written there, I have to admit that this sword is a masterwork. Harl had been testing the balance. He handed it back to Eredin, who, by now, had dressed and was munching on a hunk of meat. Let's all just stay here forever. Joked leaning back on her elbows. I think this little spot must have been blessed by Ahia. It is the most wonderful place I have ever known. Dramatis Personae, Part 2 Ursuleth Stone Carver. Seven days ago, it was the most awful place she had ever known. She was hungry and thirsty, true. But much worse, she was desperately lost and scared. It had been a mistake to come here. How could she have been so reckless? At first, it had not been so bad, and her curiosity had overpowered her trepidation. The mushroom fields and creature pens had been quiet and untended. The topmost levels of the mine had been lonesome stretches of rock tunnel, but the uneasiness hadn't truly set in until she reached the lower, active mines. The transition between these two spaces was easily identifiable by all the broken rock and the carts, picks, hammers, and other equipment, as well as the telltale dark blotches of unmined iron ore in the rock. Ursulitz had navigated thus far mostly by dark vision, though here and there, just as in Dwarvar, certain large quartz crystals had been enchanted so that they shone with soft magical light. Since there were no other dwarves here, a place where she should have expected to find dozens toiling noisily, she might have turned back by now. She should have. But curiosity had driven her farther in. Mindful of the chance to become lost, Ursulaith had memorized her path, but when she heard noises and voices ahead, she had stopped her mental map-making and hurried towards them with relief. But that feeling of relief began to curdle as the minutes passed and the dwarven voices did not get any closer. Sound moved through the labyrinthine tunnels strangely, it seemed. Worse, she began to doubt her ears What had seemed like the sounds of dwarves at work, hammering at the stone and calling out commands to each other, now sounded more like the sounds of fighting, with voices rising in anger, panic, and pain. She became aware that her heartbeat was quickening. She could feel it pulsing in her throat. Sometimes she crept ahead slowly and fearfully. Other times she dashed, simply hoping to put an end to the experience. Ursuleth was in a stretch of unmined tunnel much like any other when she first sensed a presence behind her. She turned around but saw only empty tunnel in the grayscale of her dark vision. Little hairs on the back of her neck pricked up and she stopped walking. There was a little tremor beneath her feet. She looked down and realized that the solid rock she'd been walking on had given way to packed grit and dirt at some point. But there was no time to think on it because suddenly the ground beneath her bulged and then erupted in a shower of rock. Ursuleth was thrown forward and landed painfully on her hands and knees. She scrambled a few feet away and then flipped onto her backside. She looked up and her blood turned to ice. She was frozen by pure, cold fear is the thing from The Nightmare fell upon <coughs> Halloween is just around the corner, and to honor that special day, I thought it would be best if I ended on a scream. As always, thanks so much for listening to my show. If you'd like to support it, there are now four ways to do so. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter, You can purchase my Rules Ultralight RPG called One Shot in the Dark for $1.50 on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone who has done any of the above. I'd like to read a review from iTunes today. This one is from Spikes4. Spikes4 writes, Excellent podcast with a unique format. The encounters at the adventure site in the mid-30 episodes, and here there's a parenthesis. I want to avoid spoilers here, but for those who have listened to the episodes, you can probably guess which one this is. End parenthesis. Was especially atmospheric, original, and quite different from the usual D&D actual play fair. Another parenthesis. The author cautions that content is explicit, and for mature listeners. End of parenthesis. Highly recommended. Thanks, Spikes for. I've come to think of those adventures as mini-modules strung together in a campaign. I had a lot of fun making and playing through the one you're referring to. As for the occasional extra-dark episode, well, it won't be the last one. There's another one coming up somewhere in the 50s that'll need a similar disclaimer. Anyway, thanks so much for taking the time to write that review, I really appreciate it. My thanks also to my cast of voice actors. Continuing in his role as the Artificer, Grumblebelly, is James Schrawl of the podcast Subclass Act. Also back as Ray Dell, the Satori Ranger, is Bruno of the Crimson Hound YouTube channel. Please check out and support both of these great content creators. Finally, I'd like to thank Kai Ellen for the use of his song, Carved in Stone. I like this song so much I've used it twice. You've heard it once before in episode 37. Kyleen is very generous with a lot of his songs and makes them available for podcasters to use. Follow him on Twitter, at K-Y-E-L-L-A-N. He has got a trove of amazing stuff. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore. The story where chaos rolls.
1: Are you tired? Tired of listening to the same old 5e classes played over and over again?
2: I'm a rogue who loves the shadows because of my tragic backstory.
1: Players casting the same old spells?
2: Ooh, I cast fireball. Dude,
1: we are right next to the monster. I know. Heh <laughs> And now roll descent. Fuck. Player characters so weak, their damage numbers are in the negative. I punch him! Uh, roll 1d4. Uh, so that's a, uh, one with a minus five. Then come listen to the Tasty Doom podcast. Enjoy the struggle of our DM attempting to balance monsters against our overpowered characters who put out unbelievable damage numbers. Join our heroes in an epic homebrew campaign in a land under siege by the undead. Come check us out on your favorite podcasting apps, YouTube, or reach us out on our Facebook, twitter or instagram and as we always like to say stay stay tasty. tasty